Good morning. Oh, that's loud. Um, so we're going to start just slightly different. This morning we're going to start with a little PSA on the importance of personal protective equipment. Uh, this week at work, I decided to spend hours in the attic cutting away fiberglass insulation and caused my throat to get extremely raw all week. And now I'm past that stage, but I get these like feelings in my throat and I cough or I have to clear my throat a lot. So I'm going to pre-apologize if I cough or clear my throat. I'm not sick. I just... I'm really dumb when it comes to taking care of myself. So if I, I'm going to try to get away from the mic, but I don't know how it's going to work with it stuck to my head. But it's just a little pre thing, and I've got a drink, so I might take a drink every now and then. Um, but as Jeff read, we're going to be in Micah <clears throat> chapter three or chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. So let me start with prayer this morning before we dive into Micah 5. God, we come to you this morning um, just humbled by the gloriousness of who you are. Uh, we're thankful for um, your son that you sent to the world to put on flesh, to become incarnate, to be born and to live a life that we can't live, and then to give us that life up um, in his death and resurrection so that we can be made righteous and be reconciled to you, Father. So we're so thankful that this morning we're so grateful for this season. And just keep that at the forefront of our minds as we deal with the business of life, as we deal with um, all the plans and different different things that we do during this time, the, the wonderful time we spend with friends and family, just keep that at the forefront of our mind that we do all this stuff um, to glorify you, and that ultimately you're our reconciler and our Father. Amen. So as I work through these passages in Micah over the past few weeks, um, that's one benefit I have of not preaching every week, is I get to know this like a month and a half in advance, so I get plenty of time to work through this. Um, but I've been pretty amazed by this intricate way that God accomplishes his plans, you know, you read through Micah, and you see these things happening to the Israelites and with the Assyrians. But as you dig deeper into the text, you, there's a lot of correlating passages, correlating scriptures that expand on the prophecy of Micah. So we're going to cover some of those today. Um, but as we do that, keep in mind that God is telling one cohesive story in the Bible. It's not a case of, uh, I know I probably used to think this um, early on, like in high school and stuff, as I was just coming, becoming a Christian, coming into the church, this idea that, like the Old Testament God was this mean, angry, wrathful God, and then he sends Jesus, and Jesus is this loving kind of uh, hippie God that just wants everybody to be happy and almost combating them against the two. But that's not the, that's not the story we see in the Bible, and I think it's going to be pretty clear uh, as we work through Micah here. This one cohesive story, it's the same God working out his plan of salvation to bring uh, many sons and daughters to himself. So Micah is chucked full of prophecy. We've already covered a lot of it getting up to chapter 5. And so one helpful way I've come to understand prophecy um, is sometimes called like a dual fulfillment passage. It's a way of looking at prophecy. We see a direct fulfillment for the current people. We'll see a direct fulfillment for the Israelites in their time. And then we also see a future fulfillment, uh, generally like in Christ or in the New Testament. We'll see a, a continuation of that. So not every single prophecy in the Old Testament is dual fulfilled. So we shouldn't read the Old Testament constantly thinking, okay, and what does this mean uh, for us? It doesn't mean anything for them. But the majority of them are. They do have a kind of a twofold nature to them. So that's where I think we're at here in Micah. As these passages are fulfilled in the nation of Israel in Micah's time, they directly meant something to those people. But you also see a deeper fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant made by his blood. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when Luke was preaching, he brought up the analogy of a mountain and even offered to let me use the graphic, but I'm not very good with all that stuff, so I would have had it all messed up. But this idea of a mountain and the mountain range so as he kind of talked about, you know, when you approach mountains, you'll see there'll be just kind of a flat space of mountains. And as you get into them, you realize that they go for miles and miles deeper than you ever could have imagined. So take that same idea um, 
and apply it to prophecy. So you'll see this prophecy in Micah. There'll be this glorious mountain range in front of him. But then as we dig into it deeper, we see that it has a lot more depth than I think even Micah would have known. So it'll be fulfilled directly for the people. You get that front image of the mountains. And then it'll generally be uh, fulfilled later like in Christ with the New Testament again. So you see that kind of depth of the mountain range. Um, it's almost like a 2D image or maybe a painting for Micah. He gets to see this gloriousness, but he, I don't think Micah had the opportunity to see the depth and the magnitude of what's coming later. Um, so I actually have made that drive from Colorado um, into Kansas. So I'm going the opposite direction. I'm coming, I'm leaving Colorado, going into Kansas. Uh, my wife and I and some other family were able to take a trip to California a few years ago. And uh, on that trip, on the way back, we actually went up through New Mexico and, uh, sorry, Nevada and Utah into Colorado. And so as we drive through these mountains, and, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I live here in Missouri, so mountains aren't this thing that I've had a lot of uh, acquaintance with. And so driving through um, Utah and Colorado in that area, it was just absolutely beautiful to see the magnitude of what's going on there with the mountains. And then we get out of, basically, we get into eastern Colorado, and it's just flat. I don't even, I'm, if you've ever been through there, it just changes almost instantly. It's the craziest thing. And I can remember looking in the rearview mirror and seeing the mountain range behind me that we just left, and it almost looking fake. Like, it's almost like it wasn't really there. And it was just a few miles ago that we were going through that, uh, just this beautiful mountain range. And now it's this glorious picture, but it's still not quite the same as when you're in the middle of them. Um, so that's kind of the, the attitude I'm taking here looking at Micah's prophecies is that he has, he has this very uh, magnificent picture of mountains. There's this prophecy is coming for Israel. He's talking about the coming Assyrians and, and the deliverance that the Lord is going to bring to them. <clears throat> and he knows, I think, that there is this future coming of the Messiah and kingship, but he doesn't have a full picture of who Jesus is. That's something I think we're very blessed with is we get what we're on the other side of that. We know Jesus by name. We know the works of Jesus. We know that he's coming back. And so we have a, a fuller picture of what is coming here in Micah. Um, so yeah, again, we're standing in the middle of that, of that mountain range. And so we're going to expand on that uh, some this morning. So as we dig into Micah, I want to take a minute to give a little bit of background about prophecy and uh, what prophets were through the Old Testament. So the uniform understanding in the Bible of a prophet is one that's a speaker for God. It's not his own words that he's speaking. It's not his own wise decipherings or his own reasoning that he's bringing uh, for these are actually the words of God. He's being overcome by the Spirit of God. So there's this divine Spirit that overcomes them, and that they can hear and see things that otherwise would have been hidden to them. Again, these aren't these, they aren't like casting, uh, looking at the clouds and trying to decipher things or looking at the stars and figuring out the future like a fortune teller would. But these are actually things from the Spirit of God. So this form of channeling, it, this isn't a form of like channeling or a trance type experience. It doesn't get rid of the consciousness of the prophet. They're still who, who they are. God is using them to expand on this beautiful picture he's painting. And as I was kind of thinking through this idea of a prophet, um, I grew up watching way more horror movies than I ever should have probably and things I shouldn't have watched as a kid. And so immediately when I started thinking like prophet or prophecy, I, my mind goes back to all these just movies that kids shouldn't watch. And so I think of like, the old lady fortune teller like in a tent by the circus telling these people this doomsday prophecy that's you know going to come about. But that's not what's going on in the Bible. Um, and if you don't have those images, then great. You had a better childhood than I did. But if you did, um, just try to, try to wipe them out and not think about them as, as we're moving on here. So 
uh, again, this doesn't eradicate the individuality of the prophet. Like Micah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, they were actually who they were. God was using their individual personalities through these prophecies. So they're fully conscious, they're aware of what the Lord is doing through them, they're aware that the Lord is using them to speak to the people of God. Um, again, going back to that kind of Hollywood version we think of prophecy, uh, one thing that kept popping in my mind when I was reading through this was like, I'm sure we've all seen the Matrix movies, I think there's a new one actually coming out. This idea of like the prophecy, there's this one that's going to solve everything. Um, or Star Wars, which this is like a side note, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but if there's like a Star Wars nerd in here that can help me, I'm a fan of Star Wars, but I have like a limit on how much I know. <clears throat> so if I remember correctly, this, the prophecy from Star Wars was that there would be one that would bring balance to the Force. And if I remember correctly, at that time, the Jedi only, there was only the Jedi. There was no Sith. So the balance could have only been the destruction of the Jedi. So I'm not sure why they were looking for this guy and why they wanted to train him up because it seemed like it was their destruction. Anyways, if I have that totally wrong, please stop me after this. That was the side note, but... Just as I thought, I was like, I don't think that prophecy makes much sense for what they were looking for. But anyways, now that I've gone off on that side trail. Yeah, boo, thank you. Yeah, <coughs> let me get a drink. Um, so yeah, we're just gonna, we're gonna drop off of that because that's ridiculous. Anyways, so going into the character of a prophecy, there's three things I wanna point out. Um, so one, there's a grand divine unity that connects the different elements from the prophetic message. White prophet is speaking to a specific group, uh, a specific context. They speak so that their contemporary audience can understand them. Uh, it's in the New Testament that we get fulfillment of some of these, that we start to see a form of divine revelation. The unfolding of the kingdom is one of these prophecies that takes place throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. We see that kingdom being un unfolded in front of us. But we must be careful not to reply everything in our day, ignoring the context and the audience that the prophecy was written for. Um, I think it's actually where a lot of our issues with the book of Revelation come in is that people read the book of Revelation, they try to take every single tiny piece and apply it today. And they, they look for Apache helicopters and different things in the text, and it's just not there. So we got to make sure we don't do that with prophecy, that we don't remove the original context and author and the people he's speaking to. Two, there's a partial nature of these prophecies. Many prophecies must be understood in relation to others. So in Isaiah 11, for example, uh, one may think, that by reading just Isaiah 11, that the kingdom was going to become was going to come and be won by physical force, but we see in other places like Isaiah 9 that the war language is figurative. So these prophecies will build off of each other. Even leaving the book of Micah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and all the prophets, they build off each other, presenting this grand picture of what God is doing. And three, the perspective, character of prophecy. So the prophet sees things that are to be fulfilled successively and gradually. One prophet may build from another and give more insight to what was spoken before. Also, we see, again, prophecies having their completion in the New Testament. So we see this gradual pro prophetic completion happening. They're relevant to the people. Again, at that time, there's a gradual nature to this prophecy that we're seeing. So with these things in mind about prophets and prophecy and even Star Wars, uh, let's keep that in mind as we dive into Micah 5. We're going to read verses 3 through 6. Uh, starting in Micah 5, 3, it says, Therefore he will, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, this isn't the first analogy to childbirth in Micah. Um, Luke actually spoke about it a couple weeks ago. And the pains of giving birth being replaced with the joys, with the joy of birth. And Micah 4, 9 through 10, we read, Now we do, now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? <clears throat> or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth. 
daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemy. Now I'm not going to try to explain the intricacies or the difficulties of childbirth, because I honestly, obviously, I have no idea of what goes on in all of that. Um, and I'm sure Amanda probably is thinking that's probably good because I get the sniffles and I'm about crippled. So she's probably thinking, it's good that you don't try to explain to us how difficult it is. But I do want to bring up one thing that I do remember from when my own son was born. So I can remember being in the delivery room <clears throat> when Elias was born, and we'd been there uh, for quite a few hours. I don't remember exactly how many hours we were there. Uh, and the nurses actually let me play a small role in all of that. I wasn't just a fly on the wall. They kind of, I think they were just being nice, but they let me participate kind of in the, her giving birth there. Um, and just watching that whole thing, the nurses and the doctor doing their job and the things that they were doing to, to make sure everything was good and people were healthy and everything was the way it was supposed to be. And I, again, I'm completely lost. I want to help, but I'm really probably more in the way. And they were gracious to give me a spot to stand and be helpful without being in their way. Um, yeah, I wanted nothing more than to help her. I could see that she was in pain. I could tell that there was a lot of struggle. Uh, but I remember, like, as soon as Elias was born, all she wanted to do was hold him. The whole day, all of that stuff had just been washed away by the fact that our child was in the world now. They had been born. And so it didn't matter, all the, the hours of being in the hospital and the pain with that, and even the months of just uncomfortable struggles and the things that come along with being pregnant that I just don't understand. All that melted away when our new baby uh, was here in the world. And so similarly here, God is preparing the people to bear the misery that was coming them and then have final deliverance. They'd be oppressed and have many hardships for a season, but God would be their guardian and bring forth joy from those hardships. So in the vein of that dual fulfillment, we see the mountain that is directly relevant to Israel and we see a future fulfillment in reference to Christ. First, I pointed out God is preparing his people as a childbearing mother, the pain of hardship that was coming to them, the judgment that was coming to them, but that he was their God forever and their relief would come in due time. And Micah 4 and 5 both express the same truth. And, so, and then we see a second, even more glorious fulfillment in the virgin birth of Christ. There'll be a permanent joy and harbor for those in the Lord in the future. The sin that entered the world in Genesis will be dealt with. The promise made to the woman that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent would be realized. In John 16, 21 through 22, we read, uh, here Jesus is, for, is foretelling of his coming death and resurrection and the grief that will come upon the disciples, but that that grief will give away to joy. And it's a similar reference here in Micah. So in John 16, starting with 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So we have this joy as we face these hardships in life because Christ is the foundation of our life. He's the foundation of who we are. And one day we'll be gathered together with Christ. So he's going to gather his brethren. There's a remnant uh, spoken of a lot throughout the Old Testament, and held a special place in the prophecies of Isaiah and many others. There was this holy seed, this spiritual kernel of the nation that would survive the impending judgment and become a seed of the people of God moving forward. That blessing is expanded in the coming of Christ. The remnant shall be gathered under the new covenant in Christ. This includes not only the Jewish remnant, 
spoken of here in Micah, but it's extended to the Gentiles, which would be us, in the New Testament as well. We're going to read a section of Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11. We're actually going to come back to this three or four times throughout today, so if you, if you turn there, you can kind of keep your finger there, because um, we'll, we'll be back and forth there. Starting at verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you at that time were separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you have previously been far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we're included in this prophetic promise in Micah of the coming king and the coming Lord. It's humbling to me that we're included in this promise. And this is the plan from the start. In Micah 5, verse 4, we read, And he, talking about Jesus, will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. It's just a continuation of the description of the coming Christ. He shall stand and shepherd and feed over his flock. He does this in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of the Father. So Christ and the Father are one in power. He will rule forever. The same protection that the Israelites sought in God the Father from the Assyrians is Christ to wield over his flock. The Israelites had looked for this coming promise of the king, and many of the prophets spoke of this coming shepherd to feed his flocks. In Ezekiel 34, we get uh, the good shepherd is guiding and feeding his flock. It's a common motive in the Old Testament. When this prophecy fulfilled, the Messiah is feeding his flock, and his dominion shall extend to all the earth. So in Ezekiel 34, 13 through 15, we read, And I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from their countries, and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture, and their grazing places will be the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in a good grazing place, feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed my flock, and I myself will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. So see that Christ and the Father are one in this plan. It's not that the original promises made in Micah's day, made to the Israelites, would then be later taken over by Christ, that the plans would change. The Father and the Son are one in the same plan of salvation, in the plan of redemption, and the returning remnant of God's people. We mentioned Genesis 3.15, when sin entered the world. That's our first glimpse of the promise of a coming Messiah, all the way back in Genesis. And this is God speaking to the serpent as part of his curse. Starting in verse 15, it says, And I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we see all the way back even in Genesis, right after the fall, that God isn't scrambling to come up with redemption. Um, too often I know in my own life, I try to make plans. I try to plan for kind of worst case scenario, especially at work, what could go wrong. And most of the time I have no idea what could go wrong for that day. Um, I, I make these plans of kind of how I lay my day out, and then, well, an example that happened a couple months ago, a goose flew into the power lines at work, so we lost power to the whole building. Well, I couldn't have planned for a goose to fly into the power lines. Like, that's not on my list of what could happen for the day. I mean, it is now, but it wasn't at the time of could a bird get in the power lines. So that day ended with me carrying uh, a burnt goose out to the woods. So it's an interesting, interesting day. But we, don't, we make these plans, and we have these ideas of like, okay, if I plan for this, if I have all these contingencies, how am I going to figure it out? 
And a lot of times we end up just winging it and trying our best to make things work. But that's not what we see with God. That's not what we see with the plan of Jesus coming in salvation. This was the plan from the beginning. God wasn't surprised by our sin. He didn't have to call an audible and, and figure out a way to win the game at the end. This was all part uh, of, of our sovereign king's plan. So this leads um, to another section that I, I kind of struggled if I was going to leave in here or not. We have this phrase that um, his God, that we have Jesus uh, being referenced, but then also that the Father is Jesus' God. Um, and that can kind of bring up, <clears throat> excuse me, that can bring a, uh, an idea, especially uh, if you think about it in reference, in reference to the Trinity, we have this idea of like, well, God and the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one God, uh, three persons in one being, but this is saying that his God is, is the Father. So does this not cast some doubt on Jesus being fully divine? Uh, and again, this brings up this, uh, the, the doctrine that they gave a fancy word to uh, is the hypostatic union. Um, it's this idea that there's two natures in one person. There's the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus, and they combine into one person of Christ. And it's a, it's a really difficult doctrine um, to even explain, and we're not going to be able to explain it all in the context of a sermon on Sunday morning. Um, but, but I do want to touch on it for a second, because I think it's extremely important. So we need to approach the incarnation of Jesus uh, in this season. You know, we're talking so much about the incarnation of Jesus being born in the world. So we need to approach that with understanding that his, this union of two natures, divine and human, being d- combined into one person. But we need to approach it uh, in humble understanding that we're defining a doctrine that's unique only to Christ. So much of our knowledge, so much of the things that we know or we try to explain, we use analogy. So this is like that. Uh, we have no analogy for the incarnation of Jesus. It's unique only to him. So our language isn't adequate to fully apprehend uh, what we're touching on here. Honestly, Christ is is too glorious for exhaustive definition. We'll never be able to fully define Christ and how this all works. But with that in mind, I, I don't want to also have this doubt of, well, we can't understand Christ at all. So I want to draw a circle of truth based on God's word around this idea of the hypostatic union, of the incarnation. Um, it's difficult to explain exactly what's inside the circle. That's where we, we get our understanding of who Christ is and that is something that's going to be extremely difficult to fully exhaustively define. But one thing I think this the idea of like a circle could be helpful is that we can draw that line so that we know when we're outside that line, we've moved into error and heresy. And so what does scripture clearly teach us about Jesus that I think we can put inside of this circle and draw those lines? So scripture is clear that Jesus has a divine nature, that he is God, and that has a human nature. He took on flesh so that he could live the life that we couldn't live but he's not two people kind of smashed together in one. He's one person with these two natures. Now, again, we can't explain all of this in the context of a sermon on Sunday morning. Um, there's a lot more detail. Excuse me, there's actually uh, there's resources online. There's systematic theologies that will go into more detail here. But there will be a point where just the sheer gravity of the unique incarnation of Jesus is beyond our words. It's beyond something we can explain and define. So that's when we rest on Scripture. We rest on what God has revealed about who Jesus is for us and in our lives. We, we rest on what he has said about himself, and we dare not speculate. I think too often we fall into the idea of speculation. We start to speculate, well, if God's like this, then he must do this, or he must be this way. Or, well, two natures in one person, that doesn't logically work in my brain, so that can't be true. It has to be something different. But we have to rest. It's the same idea with the Trinity, I think. When we try to fully comprehend what's going on in the Trinity, it's going to 
break our brains. But we know that God is three persons in one being. And we have to let the Bible define what it means to be a person and a being. And you have to combine that with what's going on in Scripture. And I, th- I really do think the best we can do is draw a circle around it, do our best to understand it. But that circle gives us boundaries not to go outside of. So we never want to say that Christ is only an exalted human being, but he wasn't fully divine. We don't want to get into that. That's, that's contrary to what Scripture is teaching. So we understand this reference in Micah to the human nature of Christ, that the Father was God for Christ. That Christ is the mediator between the Father and man. He receives power from the Father in that role. So remember the connection of the Father and the Son is one. Christ is the protector of the church, the power of the Father. The Father isn't to be seen separate from Jesus, the mediator. And the mediator Jesus is empowered by the Father. They're working one mutually in the plan of salvation for the people of God. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we read, For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or the peace of the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. In Psalms 2, I do it every time. It's Psalm. It's not Psalms. There's no S, but I even typed it incorrectly. In Psalm 2, 7 and 9, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So we see again and again the union of the Father and the Son. They're not counter to one another. They're not in opposition. They're not working against one another. They, along with the Spirit of God that we talked about a few weeks ago that had overcome Micah and this prophecy, and that same Spirit that's indwelt in each of us that has redeemed us by God through the blood of Christ, they're accomplishing together the plan of salvation for the people of God. Again, in Genesis, we see that that's the plan from the beginning. This is one constant plan to send a coming king that's going to come into the world as a baby and grow and be born um, into this magnificent king that we worship. In Micah 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 5. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. So again, this is a further discussion of the Messiah's kingship. Remember in Isaiah 9, 6 that we just looked at, he is a prince of peace. He is the one that brings peace and shelter. This last week, um, honestly for me, has been a, kind of a long week. It's been a mo- uh, mentally and emotionally draining. Just a lot has been going on uh, with different things on top of the fact that I trashed my throat. So I really, I was just concerned. There's a lot going on. Uh, but one thing that kind of helped this whole week uh, just from being overbearing is the, the Spirit just constantly reminding me through this text, I was studying this text, rereading this text, um, that who I am and who my King is. And that regardless of the things that I do or the the way that I, I come uh, here, even like with a scratchy voice, like it doesn't matter that who I am is an adopted son of the king and that he is the king always. So it's been a wonderful blessing to be studying this topic, to be studying this text uh, as life kind of had some heavy stuff. And I'd say it's even part of like God's divine providence. They orchestrated for me to preach this text this week knowing that I would need encouragement um, for the very things that are going on in the text. So Christ gives us a peace that's beyond comprehension at the time. I don't think we always even see it. We look back and we're like, oh, I can see how God was 
utilizing certain things in my life to bring me to a point uh, of worship to him. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 a lot. So going back to Ephesians 2, pick it up in 14. We're going to read through 17. And remember, this is where we stopped uh, earlier. It was talking about the remnant of Israel being brought into the fold and that the Gentiles are part of that remnant. So in 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them in both one body to God through the cross. But it, having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. So I want to point out two ways that Christ is our peace this morning. First, as a covering for his people, nothing should be feared by those under his protective wing. We should be confident in the protection that the king, that the father has given us. And we see that uh, in this passage for the Israelites. This first starts with the time of judgment when the Assyrians will be trampled, the citadels followed by deliverance from the Lord. Isaiah 10, 24-27 read, Therefore thus says the Lord, God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strike you, with the rod and lift up his staff against you, the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent, and my anger will be directed to, the, to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from the shoulders, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. The time of judgment is not limitless. The pains of childbirth are only for a season. The anger of the Lord, Isaiah says, will be lifted from the Israelites and be spent on the Assyrians. So no matter what season we're going through in life, or what, no matter what we're going through in life, remember it's only for a season. And sometimes we're going to go through seasons in our life that we're going to directly be able to relate back to sin in our own life. Like, yeah, we caused this on ourselves because of our poor decisions and our sins. And other times we won't really understand why these tough seasons, these tough times are coming on us. Um, but we can keep hope that it's only for a season. And as I was kind of thinking about that, uh, I'm just reminded of certain stories. Uh, sometimes those seasons last for years. But sometimes they last for a lifetime. But even if an entire life is the season of hardship, an eternity with Christ make, will make all that pain just melt away. It's hard to see on this side of eternity, but all these seasons um, will be nothing after an eternity with Christ. So secondly, Christ is our peace as the reconcile of men to God the Father. Who could have peace while in enmity toward God? I'm going to knock this thing off here. Before we go. The Father can have nothing to do with sin. While we are sinners, we cannot be in communion with God the Father. His holy and just nature demands that sin be dealt with. But thankfully, in his loving nature, he sent his son to die for us while we were yet still sinners. So this is the greatest peace that Jesus offers us. We can be adopted as sons and daughters to the king. We can be counted among the family of God. I think that's the peace that we come to, especially in the Christmas season, is that we have this peace that we are adopted sons and daughters of the king and that we get to celebrate his coming into the world to make way for us to have that salvation. See in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, starting 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
So God gives chastisement for a time under the hand of the Assyrians, but God will raise a number of men to defend his children. Seven and eight men, that's what the text says. These will not be men of merit of their own. These aren't the best among them. These are men that will be enriched by the power of the Spirit to rule and lead the people. And if you remember back to our discussion of, in Revelation um, about a year ago now, I guess, a lot of the number seven was referenced a lot in Revelation. If you remember, uh, seven is a reference to perfection. And then eight here is a reference to a large amount of people. So it's not a specific, there's going to be seven and there's going to be eight men. It's the idea of like his perfected large amount of people that the Spirit's going to lead, uh, going to raise up to help his people and protect his people. So in Micah 5 and 6, we see what these seven and eight men are going to do. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. and He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. So these shepherds raised by God will destroy the enemies of the people of God. Again, if we remember the idea of a twofold nature um, for the majority of prophecy, first, that directly the Assyrians would be destroyed and the Israelites would find deliverance from their enemies. And then future prophetic meaning for any and all enemies of the church. So look at the enemies that God has raised the church to defeat throughout history. And it's not always physical enemies. Um, generally, uh, it's not physical enemies. They're spiritual enemies that God is raising people up to defend the church. Um, but Israel's coming judgment was very much tied to the fact that they had abandoned God's rule in their lives, they had turned their backs on their king, and they had turned to idols. Now, when we look in the New Testament, we see Paul and Peter directly opposed to false doctrine and things... <coughs> I think I almost made it. They're directly opposed to things that are going on in the early church. <coughs> and we see Paul and Peter um, give us direct reference to those. Again, uh, as we move throughout history... You know, we see in the early church, there's a lot of heresies and a lot of attacks on the early church. So we have the works of Tertullian, Augustine, Justin Martyr, and many other early church fathers that show the, the context that they were living in, the church that was being built by God, the things that they were having to push back against. And if we skip you know, way forward, we get to the Reformation. Uh, we see, starting kind of with Martin Luther, um, <clears throat> the Reformation started not just at one specific point in time, but it was kind of a movement that was coming, but... Luther, a lot of times, is seen as kind of the head of all of that. But he was a Catholic. And through his studies, a young professor of theology, he begins to recognize and realize there's some issues uh, with indulgences, some of the ways the Catholic Church was understanding Scripture. Uh, so we can see throughout history, God's keeping and saving his eternal revelation and his people. He's raising up men and women throughout history. Uh, we could spend hours and hours talking about the men and women that God has raised up to pr protect his church and protect his flock. Um, and we see this all the way from the destruction of idols in the Old Testament uh, all the way to the destruction of idols today. So his men in Micah's day were raised up not only to defend their land by the sword, but to wage war on error and worldliness. But this only takes place after the enemy comes into the land. This wasn't an offensive strategy given to these men in Micah's time. It was defensive, pointing us back to the patient judgment coming to them. God promises deliverance after a time of misery after the people submitted to the yoke of the Lord's judgment. So Israel faced struggle and trial, but the Messiah will save her in the end. As I was kind of working through this, uh, I think it's easier to look into the past and see these specific examples of defenders in the church uh, being raised up as we go through history. But it led me to one question. 
is that does the church still have men and women today that defend her from enemies? Uh, have we given up as the church uh, on the culture that's around us for far too long? Have we held the attitude that to each their own, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it's none of our business? Uh, I'm not saying we find ourselves in the same place as Israel. If there's an army on the hillside that's coming to destroy everything uh, that we had, that we need to take up sword and go to war the way that these men um, in Israel's time did. But I'm wrestling with this genuine question. Uh, it's a question I wrestled with actually for a little while, and then reading through Micah kind of brought it back to the forefront of my mind. Uh, as I've gone through this internship here at Rooted over the last uh, almost two years now, and I'm seeking to understand uh, a calling to ministry and what that could mean, and I try to surround myself with people in my life that can help me discern uh, that, can either confirm a calling or, or help me not confirm that calling. I struggled with what that other side would be, but yeah, not confirm a calling. Um, so I worked at, I, I'm working through this idea of like, well, what does it mean to defend the church? Uh, so I had to ask myself, am I ready to step into the line of defense for the church of Christ? Uh, that's one question that I think when the internship started, I really had like, well, am I really ready for something like that? Um, well, I find myself one of the seven or eight men carried along by the Spirit to defend the church from the enemies. Uh, one thing I have come to the conclusion of, though, is I've, by coming to the end of this internship uh, in about five or six more months, is that regardless of where I, where I end up after it's over, um, as an adopted son of the Father, I don't really get a pass on if I'm going to influence culture around me. I don't really get a pass on if I'm going to be uh, a light to Joplin around me. Like, it's, it's not this idea of, like, well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't have to uh, be a good person. Like, I get to just kind of, oh, that's the pastor's job. He can handle that. Like, I, it's going to be, regardless of where I come out of this, uh, it's still, it's, it's on me and on us to be part of that for Joplin. So I don't get to bury my head in the sand and just pretend like somebody else will handle it. Um, there's a common saying that you may be familiar with, that politics is downstream of culture. And we are not going to talk about politics this morning. I don't even want to get into that. Um, but recently I heard a pastor suggest that while that may be true, he suggested more importantly that culture is downstream of worship. And I had to kind of sit with that for a little bit because I'd never really thought about it that way. Um, but if that's true, if culture is downstream of worship, then we don't get a pass on influencing culture around us because we worship a king. We don't get to let culture just be what it is as long as it generally leaves us alone. Um, and I think we can see how that's kind of working out for us so far, this attitude of being hands-off. So if we worship the coming king of peace, the one who reconciles the remnant through his blood to the Father, the one who supersedes all distinctions of Jew or Greek, male or female, and offers salvation to all, we don't get a pass on influencing the culture around us. Jesus is king now. He rules now. This is his world, and he is the sovereign Lord of it. So the 90 minutes we spend together on a Sunday morning in this building isn't the full extent of who we are as the church. This 90 minutes is a special time for us to gather and worship and be fed together as one body through preaching and encouraging word and fellowship with one another. It's a time for us to be in union with one another as the body of Christ, but it should move us to want to share this with the lost around us. We worship a merciful king, as Rodney pointed out last week. We are this king's subjects, and we've been given a command to go and make disciples of the world. And this is something I struggle with as much as anybody, if not more. Being bold in my proclamation of the coming king that is here ruling now and that is coming back to save his people. So we read a piece of Psalm 2 earlier, but I want to end with, all, with reading all of Psalm 2. So this is the one that we worship. He claims dominion and power over all the earth at this very moment and every moment throughout history. 
Starting in verse 1, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sets in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So if I had to sum up, as I was studying through Micah 5, and my, my, I think my big takeaway is that Christ is king. And I think that's something that we would all agree with. You know, as I thought of that, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's something that everybody in the room is going to completely agree with. We say that probably weekly, if not uh, multiple times a week, we think through that. But I want to expand on it just for a moment. Something kind of brought to the forefront of my mind while I was working through Micah 5 is that Christ is king for everyone, regardless if they acknowledge him or not. So the question before us isn't, <clears throat> is Christ king? Because we know from scripture that he is. The question is, do I serve the king or do I rebel against him in vain? So that's the question we must all answer for ourselves this morning. We see that prophecy, we see the coming king that's coming into the world, and we see that God is sovereign in all that he does. His plan of salvation was the plan from the beginning, and that we have a king that is sovereign over the world, and he has dominion over everything. So again, the question isn't, is he king? It's, do I serve him as king? If you'll bow our heads, we'll pray, and we'll end. God, I thank you this morning um, for your glorious word. And we get to see through the eyes of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah the promise that is coming to us. Then we get to see your plan being worked out, not only for the nation of Israel, and then you expanding that promise in Jesus to the Gentiles and to us. That you make a way of reconciliation for the remnant that we are included in through that promise. We thank you for this season of Christmas and the incarnation that we are just excited to celebrate. We get to see that coming of the king as a baby. And we get the story of his life and how he grew and worshipped you as the father. And because of his death and resurrection, the blood that he poured out for us, that we can be reconciled to you, Father. That you've made that way for us. And it's not of our own will, it's not of our own power, not of our own strength, not if I try hard enough, but only because you loved us first while we were yet still sinners. You made that way possible, and through the power of your spirit, you graft us into the remnant of Israel. We love you, Father, and we thank you for everything you do in our lives. Amen.